in the Gulf at least. So things may be heating up in the Middle East again, and we know that a lot of the people in the Pentagon and their subcontractors who are allied make lots and lots of money over war, and they're planning some wars again. And uh, it's getting tough between us and China in some respects. In the meantime, our new president, if you can call him that, was giving a speech in Texas yesterday, and from the reports I got, he says, why am I here? He couldn't remember what he was doing in Texas and why he was giving a speech. The mainstream medium did not pick it up uh, and report it, but others have. So um, we're headed into the abyss. <laughs> it's, it's here. So just, just a couple of words about developments that are occurring in the last 24 to 48 hours and where they'll lead. We know where it's all headed sooner or later, but uh, I, I'm not following a lot of it now because I know it's here. But as with what we know, it seems like I don't have to read too much of it. I can look at the headlines and see pretty much what's happening uh, without having to spend too much time following it. At any rate, let's get into a message. There have been some very great deliverances that God has made over the years. Uh, the story of Noah is quite an incredible one. And you can go on to Joseph and him being not killed because of the intercession of one brother and then sold into Egypt and being raised up to a pretty high level, going to jail and staying there and then let out by God at the right time and uh, prepared Egypt for Israel to come down and have a place to live and have food. And that's basically what that was all about. And then, of course, all Israel being saved in the Red Sea story. And then going into the Promised Land and the Jordan River backing up during the springtime flood. <clears throat> Hezekiah going to die. God told him he was. And he asked for deliverance. And God gave him an extra 15 years. Uh, so many, many stories uh, about how God has delivered Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually in the fire and not even being scorched. Uh, those are just some that come to mind. Uh, there are many others. Uh, I just flipped over to Hebrews 11 in light of that. And he starts here with Noah, and it's a, it's a chapter really about faith more than anything else and how these people trusted God. But he, toward the end of the chapter, lists uh, quite a few who had incredible deliverances. He mentions the Red Sea, of course. And then in 31, uh, Rahab the harlot perished not uh, because she did something for God's people and apparently became a part of Israel and is a part of the first resurrection. Uh, God gave that much mercy and kindness and forgiveness to a woman who made her living in a very notorious way, and yet she obviously has repented of that and did and was on Israel's side. So what a God we have. He mentions Gideon, the whole, <laughs> the whole Assyrian army fleeing before Gideon, 
and Samson and David. How many times did God deliver David? Uh, maybe starting with bears and lions and going to Goliath and on things on beyond that. He says in verse 33, "...who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire." Shadrach, Meshach, Megiddo, and Daniel there, escaped the edge of the sword many, many times, out of weakness were made strong, uh, waxed valiant in fight, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. God just turned and made them run. Women received their dead, raised to life again, several resurrections, uh, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. Others were tortured. Now, here's the other side of that. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So he shows some great deliverances, and then he shows some times here where God chose not to deliver, but to allow people to be killed. They had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment, stoned, sawed asunder, probably speaking of Isaiah there, who they didn't just cross-cut across his middle, but apparently went from his crotch up through his head and just cut him in half that direction. Uh, it reminds me of the movie of Braveheart and how they ripped him apart there. But Isaiah apparently went through that, and Isaiah to me is one of the kindest, compassionate, most wonderful writers in the Bible. He just, he has a way of putting things that are strengthening, comforting, inspiring, even awful stuff. He just had a way with words. Uh, and yet he had one of the worst killings that there was. Slain with a sword, wandered in sheepskins and goat skins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. And then he sums this up by saying, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But 39 and 40 give you the answer. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or changed into spirit, which is perfection. So they went through an awful lot. Many, many, many were delivered, and then many died. And even he who wrote this, the Apostle Paul probably, uh, was also killed before it was over, as all the other apostles except John the Apostle were either uh, crucified or killed in some form or fashion. John himself, apparently, was cast into a pot of boiling oil, and it did not affect him whatsoever. Now, that's according to Jewish tradition, not to the Scripture, but it may very well have happened that he faced that and in faith uh, went into the pot of boiling oil and came out like Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach did. So who knows all the stories there of things that happened even after this was written uh, to people in the early New Testament church. Now, God is going to have all of these in the kingdom of God, 
uh, in spite of themselves, in spite of the world and Satan and so on, uh, anybody could repent from Rahab on up. It doesn't make any difference. God is there to be kind, to be merciful, to be loving to anyone who will turn to him. And he has caused us to turn to him. And we have great promises of deliverance ahead of us through many, many, many scriptures. I fail to mention John the Baptist. Christ himself said John the Baptist was the most righteous man who had ever lived on the face of the earth to that time. And he was beheaded. So, you know, if somebody suffers problems or dies or is killed or whatever, or has serious trouble, we as humans might put on our judgment caps and say, well, they probably deserve that. Well, John the Baptist didn't deserve it at all, and Daniel didn't either, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or uh, the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or John didn't deserve that at all any more than any of us do. And probably we're far more righteous on that anyway and, than any of us. And yet God let them suffer some very horrible deaths. Uh, I don't know how many times Paul died, if you think about it. <laughs> you know, you get stoned once and you feel the rocks hit your head and you died in your mind. And then you wake up with a terrible headache and live. And then you have it done again. So you go through the death process several times and get shipwrecked and are taken on water through your mouth and nose and afraid you're going to die or that you might die. Anyway, you're going through the process whether you believe you're going to be saved out of it or not. Uh, most of us get bit by a very, very poisonous snake. We figure that's it. I've wandered through the jungles of Africa doing some hunting, and, and there are all kinds of snakes there that you die within 10, 15, 20 minutes of being bit. Uh, didn't happen, but the thought was always in the back of my mind, having grown up in rattlesnake country. So, how many times did Paul go through the death process until he finally was killed? Us going through the death process once is quite enough, thank you. Uh, but he went through it many times. Well, the reason I'm laying this background is now we're going to the book of Esther. And this is one of the more monumental deliverances of God's people in the Bible. Uh, it's a very, very important one, and there are many aspects of the book of Esther, like all the others, that fit the end time, because you can take every one that I mentioned, plus a bunch more in Kings and Chronicles and other places that I didn't even think of, you could take all of these, and then you read the prophecies, and you will find that there are elements of all those things in the prophets about the end time. It's just filled with them. So all of these stories of God delivering, God not delivering at times, 
are here written for us because all those prophecies of the end time are coming upon us and indeed have arrived, and they're going to get worse and worse day by day and week by week until the whole world is basically the population destroyed, and only a few will be saved out of it through God's great deliverance, and it will require that. Because he does say the Assyrian will come after us, and so on, and he will be turned away like in the days of Gideon, and so on. So let's look at the book of Esther uh, from that standpoint. I know we just went through Purim, and now I'm kind of backtracking. Maybe I should have done this ahead of time. But on the other hand, when they came through the Red Sea, they'd been told they were going to be delivered. And then they were delivered, and then they looked back and sang songs about it and thanked God for it uh, after the fact. And certainly we should be the same way. So in that sense, I think to go through it and now look back on it and see what God really did uh, can be an important way of looking at this. And in fact, I'm reminded of how many times Christ, while he was on the earth, would heal people, and then he'd tell them, keep it quiet, and then they'd run off and tell everybody they saw, or in some cases, they didn't even thank him at all. They didn't even say thank you for being healed of something terrible that they had suffered with for many years, and they walked away without even saying thank you. So... The book of Esther, uh, they said thank you after it was over. And they established two days to celebrate that as a result and that that should go on forevermore as a memorial of what God had done. So let's look at this and I want to approach it from that standpoint of what God was really doing here. Now, people will say to you that God's name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. And it's not. Now, does that mean that this wasn't from God? Let's ask that question, because some people think that that's the case. I think there's enough internal evidence to show God's hand regardless. I mean, when Esther asked Mordecai and everybody else to fast for her, Who do you think they were fasting to? (laughs) You know, I think that should be obvious uh, all through Israel's history. When they fasted, it was toward God. It wasn't toward anybody else. So there are internal evidences like that. And I think as we go through this, the mathematical possibilities of some of the things that occurred there are almost infinitesimal almost beyond comprehension that things would come together the way that they did. So I want us to to pick that out of here as well, because God is incredible in the way that he works out his plan and in his purpose and gets things done. I was thinking back in some respects in my own life, and you can do the same with yours and how God brought you from where you were to where you are today, and you can see his hand. I I have no doubt of that. 
You wouldn't be here if his hand hadn't been there with you and on you and leading you and guiding you to bring you where you are today. And many times he worked how? Behind the scenes. Things happened in your life perhaps you would have been unaware of. Things worked out or thoughts came to mind or you found the plain truth or you, however it happened, God was working before, behind the scenes and you didn't know it. You didn't even know him, didn't know who he was. You didn't learn about him in the Catholic, the Methodist, or the Baptist church, or a Hindu temple. You didn't learn about the true God. And yet, he found you, didn't he? And he worked with you and somehow got you here, and we all have a different story of our voyage. But his hand was unseen, and in that sense, unmentioned. He didn't come to you and say, this is God on my throne in heaven, And I'm going to call you, and I'm going to show you where the truth is, and I'm going to take you there, and I'm going to get you converted, and blah, blah, blah. He didn't do that with you. He just didn't do it. But through circumstances behind the scenes, he was working. And I think that's the way we need to view this book, that even though his name was not mentioned, he was always there behind the scenes working things out. And you can see God when God is nowhere to be seen. I think that's an important lesson here. Now, in the other books where God did things, he essentially was mentioned, but not always. I think if you could go back to the story of Joseph and how it worked out. Now, of course, he knew about God through his father, Jacob, but A lot of stuff went on between him and his brothers and him getting sold out and all kinds of things. And God didn't appear. (laughs) He just didn't appear. And yet, he went through all kinds of things that you thought would have been the end of Joseph. Especially when he got accused of uh, being involved with his master's wife. And he wasn't killed. You know, things worked out for him. And then he must have been sitting in prison for seven years wondering, why is this? What's going on? I'm sure he prayed to God, but he didn't obviously see God's hand working there. He was just there and made the best of a bad situation until God brought him out and again exalted him. So there's a lot of that going on in the book of Esther that we'll see, and I want to point out as we go through this, I thought it was worth uh, delaying the series that I was on to look at this in due season, timeliness of it. I was going to say some things about it the other night, the first night of Purim, and, and when I read through it again, I thought, I can't cover this in 15 minutes. There's more here. Yeah, you could just kind of hit the highlights, but I felt it would be good if we would go through this Seeing where we're headed today and what God says about it and sort of analyze this book in that light. Now, we could try to get um, real technical about that. I know I've thought and tried to kind of place what the types could be here 
like maybe the king being God the Father over all, and Mordecai a type of Christ, and Haman of Satan, and Vashti is ancient Israel who was unfaithful, and then uh, Esther of the New Testament church. And those things do some, in some ways fit. Uh, but they don't fit in all cases because there were a couple of things in here that happened that would not necessarily have been the way that God or Christ or Satan might have approached it. But there are enough similarities that we can see a pattern. And that's what we have to look for when we translate the Old Testament to New Testament times and to end times. Every event will not be exactly the same, but there's a pattern, a thread running about how God does things. And he does things essentially the same way because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever and you can count on him reacting in the same ways today that he did back then, in the way he says he will in the future. So you can take these different stories that are somewhat like now and some differences. And I think the story of Hezekiah is one of those. Starting there in Isaiah 36 through 39, it talks about Hezekiah and his interaction with the Syrian and the world and how he showed his treasures and then how he had his heart attack and was given about another 15 years and how his sons would be eunuchs in Babylon. We've been over those stories and how the church has become powerless as a eunuch uh, in type uh, today. And the churches that are out there are unable to really accomplish anything. So the story of Hezekiah doesn't fit Herbert Armstrong perfectly, but there are so many similarities in there that you can't help but see that God used Hezekiah's situation and recorded it so that we today can sit here and see how God worked with Hezekiah and how he worked with Herbert Armstrong, neither of whom were perfect. Then you go to Isaiah 40, and it starts talking about the end-time work. And the first few verses applied to John the Baptist as well. A voice crying in the wilderness, uh, preparing a way for Christ. Well, yeah, that applies directly to John the Baptist. But before you get out of chapter 40, it isn't talking about John the Baptist anymore. Only the first few verses, really, because that's all John did. And then it stopped. But if you read on forward through Isaiah 40, uh, 50s, and on toward the 60s, you'll see the end time work there of the two witnesses in the end time church. It's very clear. They'll pick up beginning with what John the Baptist did to prepare the way for Christ's first coming. I mean, his earthly coming. He'd been here many, many times. But for him to be born here and to live his 33 and a half years, that's what John the Baptist was preparing for. And then it goes on with a story that didn't apply to John. He got his head cut off and Christ was here and that was the end of that story. But the, but the history or the prophecy moves on to the end time. And then the last part of Isaiah, the last few chapters, are really more about the millennium. So it goes from the beginning of 
the end time church in chapter 40, and to the millennium by chapter 66. And it's all about us, you, me, the end time remnant. Hopefully we're part of it. I think we will be. But it's about us then. So, God works in strange ways to do the things that he does. That's told to us. So let's pick it up then with that much background. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Now I would take it that this was in the Middle East and Asia, uh, as opposed to over here during this time, because... Uh, if the second cradle of civilization was in Mesopotamia and all these civilizations developed from there after the landing of the ark, which I think is a very likely possibility, uh, then those Gentile nations had been reestablished over there. And Israel was taken captive from here over there by ship, as Deuteronomy 28 clearly says would happen. So there were Jews over there and Israelites over there and were in the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar and so on uh, over there and then returned here to rebuild Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and so on. So I take it that this was over in near and far east India and so, I mean, uh, Asia and so on. But in those days... <coughs> which the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace. Now, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast to all his princes and his servants. Now, this was a man who was ruling most of the, at that time, pretty much known world. 127 provinces all the way to India takes in an awful lot of territory, and it doesn't talk about west from there, whether he had some rain there or not. So he had the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. He called them all in from 127 provinces to this feast. And what was his purpose? He showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. A hundred eighty day feast. I can barely take an eight day feast and I'm about done. <laughs> what would you do with a hundred and eighty days? But he had a pretty high opinion of himself, I would say. Uh, being a king over that much territory and having that kind of power and riches. So when he made a feast to himself, which is essentially what it was, his kingdom, his wealth, and so on, he made a big one. So we're dealing here, to start with, with a man who had a huge dose of vanity and ego and self. Now, we're going to see an end-time ruler come up in the world who is going to think he's above everything. That's pretty clear in the book of Daniel, chapter 11 in particular, and in other places. 
So there are some types back here that certainly will fit what is about to occur on this earth, and we're already seeing the beginnings of that. Europe is now talking very seriously about a vaccine, vaccination permit. Can't go anywhere, do anything without your permit. And uh, it'll, it's coming here. It won't be long. Anyway, uh, he made a huge deal out of this. Basically, an earth-ruling kingdom with all that power and that's the kind of ego that Mordecai and Esther are going to have to deal with and deal with very carefully, very carefully. Because if he didn't hold out his scepter to you, you lost your head. That's just pure and simple. That, just, that was the law. So 180 days, and when these days were expired, the king made a feast to all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So 180 days for him and seven days for his people. Uh, you see who he counted the most important there, but at least he acknowledged the people and gave them seven-day feast. And during this, there were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. Must have been beautiful. Marble is such a pretty thing with the way God has made it and its granite-like hardness and the different colors that are in it. This was spectacular. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold. We had plastic the other night, didn't we? <laughs> I don't think it was even glass. But we're not there yet. Uh, we're headed there, but we're not there yet. God has promised gold streets, not just marble, but all kinds of things that surpass what even this king was able to do if we'll just believe and trust and follow him. So anyway, they drank from vessels of gold with different styles, different uh, kinds, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state or the estate or the uh, wine cellars of the king. So they had wine and golden glasses, all they wanted. And it probably was pretty fine wine, being in the king's wine cellar. And the drinking was according to the law. They had laws, apparently, about drinking. Don't know exactly what they were, but it says, None did compel. You were not forced to drink. You could drink at your own will as much as you wished, and they didn't make you drink a certain amount. So it was free will. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. So for 70 days, you could have anything you wanted and as much or as little of it as you wanted. 
Now, that was not normal in the kingdom, in any king's kingdom. Now, we'll be in God's kingdom, and we will all have perfect control of ourselves, and we will only do that which is good and proper. But they did this for seven days there and let them have anything they wanted. So that must have been pretty nice to have the king do that for you. Also, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So she had her own house. She had her own servants. She had everything that a queen would want. Uh, the king, I'm sure, was quite generous with her. And even though he owned the house, uh, as his queen, she could have pretty much anything. So on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, uh, he chose to drink till he got merry, whatever that means. Uh, wine is intended to have an effect. People drink grape juice instead of wine. And then some people think, well, if you get a buzz, you're drunk. No. That's what it's for. Why not just drink grape juice? You drink the fermented because it does do something. You are supposed to control how much buzz or how much tanglefoot you get, uh, so that we are not drunken and falling down in a stupor and so on. But it's supposed to and is designed to give you a buzz, to lift your heart and make you merry. What did God say there in Proverbs 31? To give to him strong drink, give strong drink to him that is about to perish, I think is the way it puts it. He's down, he's in the dumps, he's in trouble. Give him wine to give him a merry heart. That's what it's to be used for. And not every day to use it for getting you out of your depression. Because then you become a drunk <laughs> who is using it as a crutch not to be depressed. Now, we go to God and through His Spirit we should be able to get rid of most depression and moods and bad attitudes. But there's a time to drink and to drink with a purpose. And that is to relax you, to put you at a different level of peace perhaps, so that you're not thinking of the things that have been troubling you. But you've had enough of it that it takes those things from your mind. Now alcohol can do different things to different people. Some people are happy drunks, and some people are mean, nasty drunks. It has different effects on different people, and everybody needs to read himself and understand how alcohol reacts, and it may react at different people different ways at different times. The same person can have different reactions depending on what's going on. So you have to become wise in how you use it, so that it has a good effect, not a bad effect. And sometimes drinking 
and maybe drinking more than you normally would, can be legal in God's eyes, depending on the effect, what it does. Now, if I'm sitting in a bar with about 30 half-clad women and I'm getting drunk, that might not be the best way. But I remember my buddy in Jackson Hole and I would take a bottle of whiskey each and jump on snow machines and go hunt coyotes. It didn't create a temptation in us to do anything illegal. And we had a lot of fun, and we killed some coyotes, and we got cold, and we got warm, and then we went and shot pool for a while, and had a wonderful evening, and the effect was good. And we consumed quite a bit on some of those things. Maybe sometimes too much. I, we won't get into that. Maybe, maybe not. But it didn't lead to sin, is my point. It led to a good time of a couple of guys just being out away from this world and enjoying the mountains and the snow and the alcohol and so on. And the next day we felt good about what we'd done. So there's a difference in the circumstance by far. So you have to think, where am I? What am I doing? What's going on? Should I have this or should I not have this under this circumstance? And most generally, if I feel like I need to just get away and be by myself, I drink more when I'm alone out in the desert than I do when I'm at home generally or with other people. Because I'm away from everything and it can help take some of the pressures and the weight off and just relax for a few hours. I don't think there's a thing wrong with that. Because that's the way it's used in the Bible. We just have to be sure we're using it in the right way at the right time, the right company and everything else. Well, so I got off on that. But they had laws about it, and the king was quite merry. Now, what did he want to do? He was merry with wine, and he commanded these men, the seven chamberlains that served the presence of Ahasuerus the king. He had seven guys there that were there for the express purpose of fulfilling any wish he had. Can you imagine that? Seven people just standing by, out of the way, maybe even out of sight, until he mentioned a name, snapped a finger, whatever. Bam, right there. What do you need? What do you want? I'll do, I'm right here. I'll take care of it. Yeah, he was the king. Anyway, he commanded them to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, the queen's crown, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was beautiful to look on. So here's his ego again. Uh, not just that he was powerful over 127 provinces uh, and that he could afford to have 187 days of feasting, <coughs> but he wanted to show all these people the beauty of his wife. So he called for her, 
and wanted her to come in in pageantry with the crown on, the fine royal clothes on, to show her off to all these people from all these provinces. But the queen vastly refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains, Rutro. Therefore was the king very angry, and his anger burned in him. Here is a huge ego wanting to be stoked, and the queen, bless her heart, said, no, I will not come. Now, what's going on here? Normally, a woman, a woman that beautiful, to be showed off before all these dignitaries and people would have had her, her own ego stoked and she would have dressed up and gotten as good looking as she possibly could to be showed off as arm candy. But she said no. Did she have any clue about the ego of her own husband and what this would cause? Makes you wonder what's, what's with this woman's head. Anyway, let's read on. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, or for so was the king's manner, toward all that knew law and judgment. First of all, he was very angry, and his heat burned in him. So he sought the wise men, the court, the lawyers, the judges, people in that category, to say what should be done here. What a woman would do that to the king, even though she was the queen. At least he considered the Constitution, <laughs> something our rulers today don't do. So here were these men uh, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. So his leading advisors, if you will. And he asked, what shall we do to the queen Vashti according to law, because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. What is to be done about this? Now, he knew something had to be done. He was aware of that. You don't just go against the king of that magnitude and not have problems. What about those who stand up against the beast, the false prophet, here in the end, and say no? I will not accept your mark. They will be killed. Bang, gone. And all Christians will be categorized that way. Whether they were part of the true church and not taken to safety, 90% of them, or whether they're just run-of-the-mill Christians in the world, if they refuse to take that mark, that vaccination permit, which is leading to the mark, They'll be killed or put in a FEMA camp. Or, you know, it's headed that direction anyway. Nothing has changed in the kingdoms of men and Satan. You think Satan wasn't here with a world-ruling empire? You think he won't be here with this world-ruling empire that we see forming before our very eyes right now? Yeah, he's all through it. The Scripture shows that. So he was here too. Whether he was Haman or not, in type, uh, is neither here nor there. He was certainly here. 
And Nimakan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to the king only. So they're going to expand the charges here. But also to all the princes, to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. He says what she did in denying to come to the king affected everybody in the kingdom. Millions of people. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad to all women, so that they shall despise their husbands and their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti, the queen, to be brought in before him, but she came not. What happened in ancient Israel when Christ married ancient Israel? And she refused to stay with him, to come with him, to be with him, but went whoring after the nations. Now, Christ is going to be the king of all the universe. And he was the king back then, though they didn't really recognize it as such. But they had problems as a result, and the marriage was broken. Israel was not killed at that point because of promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they received severe penalties for having whored around with the nations. He expects loyalty and faithfulness from us, from his bride-to-be. And if we are not faithful and true to him, he will not have us in his kingdom. It's just that simple. So what is being written here is a truly good lesson for us in how we react to our husband-to-be. And what our example will be to the whole world. Now, if he takes his bride, what part of her is here at the end, not speaking of those in the past who have died in the faith who will be there, but those here at the end, he's going to bring us to Zion. He's going to set us in his example before the whole world. And what kind of example will that be? Will it be of a faithful and true bride who looks to her husband and is there for his every hope and dream and whim to support him and to support his work and what he's doing in the whole world to be an example to them? Yeah, because... What we, from Zion, do will be reported to the whole world, to everybody, and it will affect the whole world. And those two who go out and point to her as the future bride of Christ will have to be show, have to be able to show what a wonderful example she is and how Christ treats her and takes care of her. That will all be there and broadcast all over the world so that every woman, man, woman, and child on earth will see that. So what's being said here is truth. It's going to affect everybody. And we are going to be in the place of Queen Vashti and what will be our reaction. We already know 90% of the church is going to refuse to come. 
wherever God does his signs and wonders and reveals his branch, his leader, his signet, 90% of the church will refuse, just as Vashti did. And you and I will be on the line as to whether we will answer and respond properly or refuse. So let's understand that as we just see this story of a Gentile king with his Gentile wife and how things worked out. It's a good example of the spiritual. Anyway, verse 18, Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day to all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. Now back then, and almost all the way through mankind's history from Eve, Adam and Eve, on down until today, in most cases, women have been treated as chattel. They're physically weaker than men and have been basically the possession throughout history of their husbands and treated sometimes nicely, sometimes treated with contempt, sometimes abused and misused because that's the way they were looked upon. Now, in our society today, we went through at least a few decades of women being given more respect and more freedom and more opportunity than they used to have, like with voting and various things that we've had as changes. And yet, even with those changes have come problems. Women's lib and shaking that off and some of the things that have occurred as a result of it that the women were not prepared to deal with because they'd never had that kind of freedom and didn't know what to do with it and therefore misused and abused it and became something they shouldn't have been. And it remains that way today. So husbands have been wrong and now the wives have been wrong. Now everybody's wrong. So what does Ephesians say? Men, treat your wives with kindness and gentleness and love as you would your own flesh. Be wonderful to them. Be considerate of their thoughts, their needs, their dreams, their hopes. Not just there to fulfill your needs and what you want. This is the kind of husband God wants. And it isn't the kind of husband Christ will be. And then it tells the women, obey your husbands, do as they want, unless it in some way is contrary to God's way, and to be responsive to them. And for the ladies, it's an awful lot easier to be responsible to a kind, or responsive to a kind, gentle, loving husband than it is an ogre who is selfish and wants his way all the time. Makes it really tough on the girls when you have a man like that, and it's been tough on the women for 6,000 years. And now, some of them are standing up on their hind legs and throwing it back at the husband, and it's kind of tough on him, too. But now, it's devolved to the point it's tough on everybody. There's not much happiness out there anywhere, because none of it's according to God's way. Hopefully, we're learning, and we saw in the church the same thing. We told men, well, the Bible says a man ought to be in charge and be the head of his house, and he had never been trained and how to do that. So he grabbed himself a tuba for and said, I'm in charge around here. 
and you'll do what I say. And that went over like a lead cloud, because that's abuse. It wasn't done correctly and lovingly and kindly. But, you know, you're telling a guy to do something he's not trained to do, and, and he doesn't know how to handle it. So, problems come. Anyway, they were saying, this is going to become a problem throughout the province. And these problems under the beast and the false prophet will be exacerbated wildly. Anyway, verse 19, if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate to another that is better than she. Now, that's almost Christ's own words to ancient Israel. I divorce you because you have gone against me and would not respond to me. Therefore, I will not come to you again, and I will marry somebody who will respond to me, someone who's better than ancient Israel was. So he offered a new covenant to another bride who must respond in the correct and right manner and be fairer and more beautiful in character than ancient Israel was. And that's why he's called you and me here, is to be Esther, if you will, Maybe the type is not completely direct, but it's pretty good, pretty much that way. Details may be different, but the story is pretty much the same. And what did God deal with in the first place? Gentiles. Abraham was never an Israelite. Do we comprehend that? He never was one. Isaac was not an Israelite. Jacob was the first one, and from there on. So God worked among Gentile peoples, found one who was a good man, and worked through him to develop this thing so that there would be a bride for Christ under the Old Testament. So what's happening in this Gentile kingdom here is a pretty direct thing in comparison to what Christ did in bringing Gentiles and renaming them at some point Israelites. Because Israelite meant you had a calling from God, is basically what it meant. From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a calling from God that the rest of the nations did not receive. <laughs> and we'll see here that many young ladies were brought before the king, and only one received the things that the king had to give. The rest were denied, even though they may have had uh, many good qualities. But anyway, they said she shouldn't. She refused to come to the king. Okay, that's your judgment, sister. You'll never come again. That's it. No more. And we'll get somebody better than that. And hopefully, before this is over, you and I will be better than that. And we will come to the king when he bids us. And he has bid us, and we better be coming. 
Anyway, verse 20, And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. They'll all hear the Vashti was put away and was going to be replaced. And they'll hear and fear and say, I better do what I should or I might be banished and replaced. So, there was a good effect from this. And the saying pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memukin, for he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. That many provinces had a lot of different races and languages involved, and he made sure it was translated so that everybody got the message. Well, Satan is going to set up his government, his kingdom here shortly, and he's going to be sure everybody gets the message. You will all wear masks. You will all be vaccinated. You will all receive this mark in your hand or your forehead, or you can't buy and sell without it. He's going to mandate it to everybody. And Christ is going to follow that up and say, you will all obey me, and it will be mandated to everybody, or else you will die and never be heard of again. Well, it has to be. Satan's way is going to be in a bad way that brings misery. And Christ's mandate is going to be in a good way that brings love and peace and joy and security. It's just the difference in the two. But even among Gentiles, didn't, isn't there a scripture, I, I'm trying to quote it, where some, he says some of the Gentile nations did the right things simply because they understood by nature you have to do certain things in order to have a society that functions. And that's what's happening here. They had to realize that if the queen can rebel against her husband, then that becomes the precedent. So that can't happen even in a Gentile country, a Gentile kingdom, because respect breaks down. So even tribes in Africa, people that still chop things down with rocks instead of having axes, they have certain rules in their society that have to be followed because they know if they don't, their society will implode upon itself. It'll, it'll be gone. So that's what they were dealing with here. So he sent it to all people of all language that every man should bear rule in his own house. Well, that's God's way. These Gentiles came to it without understanding God's law. A man should own, should rule his house. What we would add to that is in God's fashion. According to God's rules, he should rule his house. And that it should be published according to the language of every people. I thought I was going to take a couple of sermons maybe to get through this. We're nearly done with this sermon and we're through chapter 1. Anyway, there's an awful lot here. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he had his 
vanity assuaged. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. He thought about this for a while. Then, then said the king's servants administered to him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. So he was dwelling upon what she had done and how she had embarrassed him before his whole kingdom. And this was probably still gnawing on him. And the people around him could see this. He wasn't himself. He was depressed. He was frustrated. He saw a great harm done, which affected his ego and his kingdom. He saw a solution to it, but he was still ticked off. (laughs) You know, he was having trouble getting over it. So these people saw that. And apparently, I'm sure, it affected the royal court. Because here are all his people there to serve him, to do what he wanted. And they didn't know whether he would be depressed and lash out, or whether he would misuse and abuse them. Or if they did the slightest thing wrong, he might have their head cut off, which he could do. So they were on pins and needles wondering, when is the king going to get over this and move on? So they came up with this idea. Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, 127 of these people, that they may gather together all the beautiful young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, under the custody of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the king was so pleased and happy with this idea. And he did so. Now, here they're stroking his ego again. See? Let's have 127 men gather up the most Beautiful women that there are out of all the millions that are out there. And bring them to you. And you can make a selection out of all of these women of the one that to you is the most pleasing that could possibly be. And you can marry her and let her be queen. Now I'm sure that at that point Vashti began to leave his mind. And he was getting over the anger and the frustration and the resentment and all of those negative feelings. He had a new idea here that really appealed to his vanity. That he would have the choice of any woman in the kingdom who was a virgin. There are probably not many men who would react this way, but he was pleased with that idea. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So here was a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. 
So he had been in that 70-year captivity, had gone into it. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So he adopted her, you would say, when dad and mom died. Whether that were in the captivity or after they were in captivity, it doesn't say, but they were gone. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together to Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought to the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. You can see what's going on in Mordecai's mind here. I'm a Jew. Jews tend to be looked down upon. And my stepdaughter here is a pretty good-looking woman. I think I'm going to present her as one of the candidates to be queen over this whole kingdom. And this will be good for the Jews to have a Jewish queen. Now, we'll see that he protected anybody from knowing that she was a Jew. Now, that shows you right there that there was prejudice against Jews in this kingdom. There had been in Nebuchadnezzar's day. Cyrus had been a bit of a, uh, a relief. But here was Esther, a Jew. And he didn't want anybody to know she was a Jew. We'll see that. So she was taken, and the maid pleased the keeper, verse 9, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. He gave her seven girls to take care of her and do anything she needed. And he preferred her and her maids to the best place of the house of the women. Gave her the nicest room, nicest bed, nicest place of all of them. Because he immediately became her fa the favorite of the keeper of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she would not show it. You're just going in as one of the women, and you're not going to say, Hey, I'm a good-looking Jew. Have, I, take me. That wasn't the way he went about it. And that was very, very smart of him. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now, he had this brilliant idea, and he offered her, and then he worried <laughs> So he was pacing in front of the house every day to get word of how's Esther doing. This was a big deal to Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai. Now when every maid's turn was come to go to the king Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, they were pretty well <coughs> scrutinized and went through all kinds of things before they could ever appear before the king. 
So this had become the biggest thing going on in that entire kingdom was the selection of this woman, and it was taking quite a long time to get it accomplished. Had to have been a big deal. And so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. So they went through rigorous things. Then thus came every maiden to the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women to the king's house. She could have any kind of clothes, any kind of uh, probably paint, any kind of anything she wanted, she could have. Whatever scent she wanted, uh, anything to make her appealing to the king. Whatever she thought would help. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shaashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. So she went out of the preparation house, spent a day, a night with the king, and then went into the concubine's house, a totally different facility. And she came in unto the king no more except the king delighted in her and that she were called by name. So it was left up to him. She would never see him again unless he remembered her and remembered her name and asked for her. Or maybe he didn't remember her name and asked somebody by him, what was the name of that one blonde? Oh, okay, bring her back. That's the only way she could get back. It doesn't say how many of these women there were, but they came from 127 provinces, and each guy was supposed to pick out the best from that province. So there may have been dozens, may have been hundreds of these women. Don't know. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was to go in to the king, she required nothing but what? Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. So she didn't ask for anything special, just what he wanted to dress her with and give her to go in. That is, that I'm sure was quite unusual. She was, I, I would suspect, the only one that did that. She didn't say, well, I have to have my hair just this way, and I have to have my dress just this way, and I have to have this mix of myrrh and whatever. No, whatever. Just put something on me, and I'm going. So her ego was not real high, a humble person. And that's what God wants of us, is humility as the potential bride of Christ to come in with humility and meekness and not be pretentious and try to do everything we can to uh, satisfy our human egos, it is our attitude that he is most concerned with, not how we look. That doesn't mean we're not to take care of our bodies and our minds and comb our hair and brush our teeth and take a bath. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be stewards of the body, the temple of God that he's given us, and yet not be vain and egocentric about it and try to do everything we can to embellish 
what we are to make ourselves look like more than we are, I guess, would be a way of putting it. So she just took what was given her. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all of them that looked upon her. So all the keeper of the women and all of those that were there serving and the girls and everybody else thought, wow, what a woman. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So this is four years later. That party was in the third year, and this is the seventh year. So they've taken four years. I don't know how long it was before this idea was suggested, but there must have been an awful lot of women for this to take four years to happen. I doubt it was very long after Vashti was abandoned, exiled, before these guys came up with this idea because they didn't want to see the king and the attitude he was in. So I don't think that went on for a year or two before they came up with this brilliant idea. So they went through quite a process to get the most favorable woman in the kingdom. Christ is taking 6,000 years to come up with 144,000 only out of billions and billions and billions of people to even begin to realize how much we are blessed to have gotten the calling to go before the king of the universe. That should be very, very humbling. And we should not come with ego and pride and vanity, self-centeredness and self-righteousness, but come humble, meek, poor in spirit, peacemakers, before Christ. So she was taken, and the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now do you begin to see God working behind the scenes on this? I mean, probably hundreds, if not thousands of women... In three, four years, 365 days to the year, maybe 360 then. But there could have been, well, 12 or 1,500 of them, if it went on that long, that he had to choose from. And here was this unknown Jew, and she caught his eye above all the rest. How many ever hundreds there were? You think God could have reacted upon the king's mind and him have him pick out maybe the only Jew in the bunch, probably. Then the king made a great feast to all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. Called it Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Now, if Esther had not been a pretty humble, meek person, this would have gone to her head so fast, (laughs) and she would have become so very self-important in the normal run of human beings. Esther's feast, not God's feast, not the king's feast, Esther's feast before all the provinces of the kingdom. 
That would make most girls swell with pride. We'll find she kept God in mind and God's people in mind and was acting for them, not for herself. Quite a testimony. This woman, I think, does represent the bride of Christ in this story. Maybe everything isn't exactly the same, but the pattern is certainly here of the kind of person that God is looking for in us. And gifts were involved, and when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. She paid attention to her upbringing. She had paid attention to what Mordecai had taught her. She listened and she remembered. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, not in the palace, at the gate, two of the king's chamberlains, <coughs> Big Than, Interesting name. Big Joe. Big Than. Thought a lot of himself. And Teresh, of those which kept the door, were angry and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. I don't know what they were angry about, whether it were these proceedings we've been reading about or what, <coughs> but they had something against the king. And the thing was known to Mordecai. He hung around the gate, who told it to Esther, the queen. He, he had a way of communicating with her. Didn't have a cell phone, but he had a way of getting in his word. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. <coughs> now, what are the chances of this in normal human relations? But here's two guys who are upset with the king and meant to do him damage, kill him probably. And Mordecai hears this, and a Jew girl has been made queen. So Uncle Mordecai the Jew tells the queen, and the queen goes to the king and says, there's a couple of guys out there that are plotting an assassination. I wanted you to know about it. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So they got what they were going to do to the king. Now, they did not, apparently, in that kingdom, in that time, actually hang people with a rope, but they made an upright gallows, and they impaled them on it so that they would live a while and suffer a while and die a while. Now, this is being set up. I'm going to stop here, but this is being set up for a great reason. And it's going to come around and benefit of the Jews. We'll see that just ahead of this. But I see God's hand working here. And when we get on down in the story and you see what comes as a result of Mordecai and Esther helping the king 
there's going to come a point. He'll forget about it. He'll just forget about it. And there's going to come a point where he's going to remember it. Why? Stay tuned.